3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is just past 7 o'clock in the morning, actually heading up to 7.01 as we speak. Uh, It's Priya in the studio today, flying solo this week, um, but keen to have everybody back next week for, uh, it's going to be homelessness week, but... You know, what week isn't Homelessness Week in this country? We are under an ongoing rolling cost of living and housing crisis. You know, people's housing insecurity has been at crisis point for a long time. It's just being exacerbated during the present moment. So I think um, even in the lead up to Homelessness Week, it's really important to be attentive about what we can do in our own communities. Um to engage in mutual aid and those kinds of supports, um, to make sure that we are bringing everybody along with us, and also uh, to make sure that our gestures are um, in the direction of structural transformation rather than performance. So um, we're going to have plenty to talk with you about next week. That's just a little foreshadowing, and I'm really excited to be able to do that show Uh, with everybody else, especially Spike. Um, And for this show today, uh, we are coming to you first with a couple of replays. So on Friday, the 14th of June, James McKenzie from In Your Face spoke with Jacob Thomas, who designs and makes wings with the Rainbow Community Angels. So we're going to listen back to their discussion of the wholesome joy of drag children's story time and the role played by the angels to keep everyone safe in the face of disruptors. After that, we're going to replay the final episode of the Lost, Damage, and Denial miniseries in which Jacob Gamble of Earth Matters spoke with Neta Mayava, a young Samoan Pacific climate warrior, about the need to center First Nations perspectives in climate solutions. And you can listen back to that full series at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. After that, we're going to be joined by Dr. Claire Spivakovsky, who's a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Melbourne, to talk about the recently released report commissioned by the Disability Royal Commission titled Restrictive Practices, a Pathway to Elimination. This report was co-authored by Claire, University of Technology Sydney Associate Professor Linda Steele, and University of Sydney Associate Professor Dinesh Wadiwell, and it emphasizes the urgery, uh, sorry, urgency of ending the use of forced restraints and restrictive practices against people with disability in the face of their continued and expanding use across multiple sectors. So this is a really important one, and I really hope that you stay tuned for this because We see restrictive practices used across uh, the medical and specific uh, supported disability accommodation spaces, uh, but also increasingly across educational, carceral and other settings. And uh, I think this report really highlights what a lot of uh, disabled community members have been highlighting for a very long time about serious concerns about the use of both physical and chemical restraint. 
Um, and finally, we are joined by Lara Week, who's a resident of Technopark Drive in Williamstown. And Lara is going to join us with an update about the campaign by Technopark residents to stay in their homes in the wake of eviction notices issued by Hobson's Bay Council, which decided to enforce the area's long-standing industrial zoning in May of this year, despite it being used for residential accommodation since the post-World War II era. Now, residents of Technopark Drive are holding a rally next Tuesday, the 8th of August, prior to the next Hobson's Bay Council meeting, and they're calling for supporters to meet at Logan Reserve in Altona at 5.30 p.m. with plans to march to the Altona Civic Center ahead of the Council's 7 p.m. meeting. So you can find more about the campaign and how to write to Hobson's Bay Councillors by looking up Save Technopark Drive uh, or Save Technopark on Facebook and um the campaign uh, by the Residents Association is all there, and we'll have the links in our show notes as well. And when we talk to Lara, Lara will be sharing some of that information too. So big show coming up as always, and you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast again on 3CR 855 AM. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. And we're back, and these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 3rd of August. With a note to First Nations listeners, as this first headline mentions a First Nations person who has died. The Victorian government has this week proposed to delay bail reforms for another year, despite ongoing calls to urgently scrap provisions that have resulted in almost double the number of First Nations women being incarcerated in this past year. Bail reform consultations have been held over the past six months and were prompted by the coronial inquest into the death in custody of Gunichamara, Jaja Warang, Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta woman Veronica Nelson in 2020. The coroner's report in January found bail provisions that breach the Charter of Human Rights and disproportionately affect First Nations people remanded for low-level offences and recommended the provisions be repealed in an urgent review. However, six months later, the state government are now proposing to delay bail reforms for another year, a move that First Nations and human rights advocates say will have tragic consequences. In other news this week, Gumbanjar elders are leading a protest against the logging of native forests near Coss Harbor, which is home to several significant sites for Gumbanjar people. The New South Wales state-owned Forestry Corporation is responsible for the logging, which the Greens Environment spokesperson says is planned at an industrial scale, despite the forest area being identified as a critical koala habitat. Advocates say zero community consultation has taken place, with Gumbunjar elders becoming aware of the planned works earlier this week. At the site, which is a public forest, Protesters have faced police presences and locked gates, as well as the destruction of cultural heritage when a sacred fire lit by the Gumbundra elders was doused by fire officers. 
And finally, in news headlines, migrants and advocates continue to urge the federal government to guarantee that migrant workers who report their employer's exploitation will not have their visas cancelled. In a report launched this week, unions, lawyers and migrant rights groups have teamed up to call for the introduction of a, quote, exploited worker guarantee, end quote, to protect against deportation while migrants pursue action against exploitative employers. Reforms currently being drafted include ministerial discretion to prevent the cancellation of an employee-sponsored visa, but advocates say this must be strengthened. The Alliance said that there needs to be clear accountability for companies who exploit workers and ironclad protections in place for migrants. Anything less will mean exploited migrants fear coming forward to report exploitation. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 3rd of August, and I also have some community announcements. This one is a call to all social workers. The Australian Association of Social Workers, EGM, is being held today at 4 p.m. AEST. Social workers with lived experience of the criminal punishment system are calling for members to use their votes to remove the discriminatory criminal history clause from the AASW constitution. This clause prohibits membership to people with lived prison experience over 12 months. So massive credit to Tina at Sisters Inside and other people who have experienced incarceration but are also practicing social workers for leading the charge on this important motion. And listeners will remember Inez's very important um, explanation of why this is such an exclusionary uh, mechanism and actually locks out people with vital lived experience and devalues that lived experience as part of the practice of ethical social work. So, again, for all social workers listening, if you're a member of the AASW or if you want to register now uh, to support this motion, the EGM is being held today at 4 p.m. ES, uh, AEST. Um, and please do vote uh, in support of removing this discriminatory criminal history clause from the Constitution. Now, there's also a petition uh, to keep our city alive, and this is a petition in support of a medically supervised injecting room in Melbourne CBD. Uh, we've been having conversations about the importance of this facility over the past few months, and this is just a reminder that it is absolutely vital that to save lives, there needs to be uh, a medically supervised injecting service in Melbourne CBD, um, which has so many people coming through as they cross the city. Uh, the city is uh, obviously, you know, a hub for many members of the community, whether you're working there, whether that's where you primarily meet up with people in your social circle. It is a vital place to have a medically supervised injecting room because right now, um, the highly successful center that's operating out of North Richmond is a bit out of the way for people that will be using that absolute thoroughfare that is the Melbourne CBD. So, you know, without a safer alternative, people are being forced to inject in car parks, in laneways next to restaurants and public toilets, and approximately one person a month dies of heroin overdose in the city of Melbourne. And this is the highest of any local council. So it's 
absolutely vital that people sign this petition. And you can find that by going to change.org and searching Save Lives, Support the Opening of a Supervised Injecting Service in Melbourne CBD. So I understand that's a bit of a long one. We'll have that link in our show notes. But please do support this call. It's also being shared by Harm Reduction Victoria. So you can go to their socials, and I believe they are HRVicAU on Twitter. So yeah, please keep sharing this around and signing it. It, it, it is absolutely vital. Uh, so that has been our announcements and headlines for Thursday, the 3rd of August. And you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the U.S. dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday, 6th of August at 1 p.m. at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page, No AUKUS Coalition Vic a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast. And now we're going to replay a conversation between James McKenzie from 3CR's In Your Face program, uh, where James spoke with Jacob Thomas, who designs and makes wings with Rainbow Community Angels. Now, they spoke about the wholesome joy of drag children's story time and the role played by the angels to keep everyone safe in the face of disruptors. So really excited to listen back to this chat. I am delighted to have Jacob Thomas in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> it is so good to meet you. Now, we were debating whether or not we've met before. <laughs> and we, and look, and my thinking is we have, but I've been in drag, um, which apparently that means that you haven't noticed me, so I'm going to assume my drag looks fine. So there we go. <laughs> A chameleon of all genders. There we go. <laughs> look, the last time I saw a photo of you was last week. Uh, maybe it was early this week. It would have been behind, Monday. You were behind the sewing machine doing great stuff for Rainbow Community Angels. Yes, yes. I uh, have had the absolute privilege to... Uh, help lead the design of those wings uh, that you see at all those events. So we were doing some nice little fix-ups, which is great. Um, and let's just put it this way. Queers are amazing. We're crafty. So let's just recap a little bit. Rainbow Community Angels are going to drag storytime events, supporting the drag artists and the staff, mm-hmm. you know, in the face of all these protests. Yeah. Well, we, let's not call them protests. Like, you know, like protests are good. We need protests. These are you know, a bunch of individuals who, frankly, just hate the queers. And so, you know, let's not legitimise them calling it a protest. But yes, our whole point is to, you know, safeguard community, especially kids who let's be real, are there to listen to a book being read, and that's it. Something completely you know, uh, innocuous. Something wonderful about literacy, and that's it. Absolutely. Now, you also, I mean, have you done drag story time yourself? I have. It's been really, really fun. And it's just, I, so uh, you can probably tell by the, the inflections in my voice, I'm an artist. And I'm also an academic, so I sort of sit in the, in the nice little overlay, if you will, of psychology and then joy and art. Um, and, you know, when you do, like, you can do drag for adults, and, you know, you, you know it's going to be done in a very particular way. 
Um, it's not always right for kids. But Drag Story Time for Children is a wonderful, wonderful, wholesome moment to be a part of because it's the joy of play. Like, we lose that when we become adults. It gets kicked out of us. And to see these young people just creating and having a great time, you know, building their literacy skills, uh, you know, sitting in their creativity, what a wonderful thing to be able to give back to community. Like, it is just joyous and wonderful and pure. And the parents love it, the guardians love it, the families love it. Uh, you know, I've worked with a couple of other drag artists and we usually like, you know, do a big dance at the end. You know, everyone gets to wear a wig if they wish to, they don't have to. Um, and we just have fun, fun, pure, unbridled joy. And imagine how healthy it would be for those people who are disrupting mm. if they were actually part of the fun and the constructiveness and just actually watched it and absorbed it and went through that kind of emotional journey and connection. Yeah. Imagine how much healthier they'd be. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, they, they don't want to. So, <laughs> so it's like, you know, people have to be willing to change to want to change. But it is, it's just fun. That's it. You know, why would you not want that? It's the reason I do drag, you know, is you get to put on a face, wear whatever you want. Um, I'm usually in a gigantic dress because, fine. Anyway, because why not? <laughs> Flounce about. And you just get to play. Yeah, because you become an adult, you, you know, go and, you go and study, you go and get a job, and then you're stuck under capitalism, and that's exhausting, and then everyone's tired and scared of everything. And it's just like, oh, my God, imagine being able to be fun. And just feel relaxed and connected to others. How wonderful. It's almost like it's community building. Like, ah, oh, what a shocking you know, enterprise that we're undertaking with that. Drag is fun. Tell us about the angels training. I, I just found it fantastic that angels were having training. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was kind of cute as well. But what does it involve? It's uh, guided by the basic principles of you know, mental well-being. Of course, absolutely cornerstone. Uh, knowing how to look after yourself in one of those situations. Because it's a very brave choice to physically put yourself between what can be incredibly violent people who are there to purposely, with intent, cause harm and disrupt you. And a very vulnerable population being children. And to stand in the middle. You know, that takes a lot of mental preparation, a lot of physical preparation, a lot of checking in with yourself. And that, and it's so well facilitated, so well thought out. Uh, the people who have created the Angels program and who, like the number of different groups that have all come together to facilitate and build this is just, you know, this is what community does. This is what we do exceptionally well. It is thorough. It is so well thought out and there's continuous training. There's always chances to you know, adapt and to reaffirm what you know and what you need to know and to check in, check out. It's just so well thought out. And there must be a lot of emphasis on connecting between the angels. <laughs> it, is, it, is the, it is the collective of angels. I think it speaks to what we see in so much social justice work and so much... Uh, around, you know, the core point of community response, you can't do things by yourself. You know, there, there is strength in numbers, right? You know, and I, I think it has really helped a lot of people who have felt, not, I don't want to say powerless, because I don't think that's exactly true or helpful, but people who have said, I don't know what I can do. This is incredibly upsetting to me. If one of us is attacked, all of us are attacked, what can I do? And I think that's where the angels come into a really useful space for people because if you can't 
or you don't want to be physically there in between the stoush, you can work with people like me and drop in and say, oh, I'll wash the wings or, you know, do you need a snack? You're like, you know, it's just everyone has a place that they can play in that. You know, it's interesting when people want to just, like, walk by you. I found this during lockdowns uh, when, you know, there was no one in the city. <laughs> but um, And certain people just thought, oh, let me take this over. And people would walk by me and just say, faggot. <laughs> and I just And previously I'd just be like, oh, it just hurts, it sucks. But instead I would turn around and just be like, and what, mate? And what about it? What are you going to do about it? And how do they react? Scared. Run. That's it. <laughs> and, so, and so it is interesting. Like, you know, if you feel comfortable and able to do so, you stand up for yourself. But it is. A, but when you have a group of people able to do that, whether you stand up to it or not, you then also have aftercare, right? And, you know, being... And this is like allyship, right? Allyship is you're there in the tough moments to support, you're there in the good moments to celebrate, and you're there in the banal moments to just be... But coming back to the whole crux of the angels is to stand up for what's right, protect kids, do good queer shit, <laughs> and have a good time, and stand up in the face of hate. Because if we don't do it, then no one else is going to. On the drag front, what is happening for you? Uh, like, I had several gigs booked up um, or planned, probably for last week and this week, and they all just went and just disappeared, and they all went, sorry, we can't go ahead. And that's it. And, like... As an artist, as a person, if you can't go ahead, just tell me why, and that's okay, and I'll reassure you, because I probably understand why it is. Um, if you're scared, if you're worried, that's totally fine. We'll get the angels. You know, we're available. We're here to help. And I, and, and I don't hold a grudge against anyone who's wanting to keep their staff safe, keep their venue safe, um, keep themselves safe. Uh, but the more we back down, the more those very horrible people win because it validates them. That's what they want. Yeah, now's the time to be doubling down. Get more queer stuff happening. Um, you know, we need to support artists. We need to support drag as much as we can. Because the people causing the nuisance, they're a very small number of people. I mean, most people love drag. Yeah. Jacob Thomas, it has been a joy to meet you here at 3CR. Thank you so much for popping in. Thank you so much for having me. And that was James McKenzie from In Your Face speaking with Jacob Thomas, who designs and makes wings with the Rainbow Community Angels. So we just heard um, their discussion from Friday the 14th of July uh, about the wholesome joy of drag children's story time and the role played by the angels to keep everyone safe in the face of disruptors. Now, remember, you can catch In Your Face on 3CR 855 AM on Fridays from 4 to 5 p.m. And we're going to head to a track now. This is a new one by Kiwat Canal. It is called Disconnected.
You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Disconnected by Kiwat Canal, um, an absolutely beautiful new track that he's just put out and um, really encourage folks to go listen to his music as well. Um, he is just a wonderful, proud Eastern Torres Strait Islander man from the islands of Ugar and Arab and um, as you can, as, as you've just heard, has a an incredible, um, incredible voice, incredible musical style, and, um, you know, uses this as a platform for storytelling as well. So, again, you just heard Disconnected by Kiwat Canal, and you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Cheryl and Troy have been married for more than 25 years. They spent 10 of those years living on the streets of Melbourne addicted to heroin. In a groundbreaking collaboration, photographer and writer Ali MC conveys the couple's compelling narrative in an audio-visual installation and photographic audiobook. H, A Love Story launches at Richmond Library on Wednesday, August 9 at 6.30pm. Entry is free and all are welcome. H, A Love Story, a project about love, heroin and homelessness on the streets of Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. It is just coming up to 7.31 in the morning. And now we are going to listen back to the final episode of the Lost, Damage and Denial miniseries in which Jacob Gamble of Earth Matters spoke with Neta Mayava, a young Samoan Pacific climate warrior, about the need to center First Nations perspectives in climate solutions. So let us listen back to that now. My name is Neta Mayava and I am of full Samoan descent, so I have Polynesian heritage from the Pacific. Uh, both my parents were born in Samoa, and I, whereas I was born in New Zealand, so I have that connection through my parents and my culture and heritage. Neta Mayava is a Samoan Pacific climate warrior fighting to preserve her homeland. And I'm a part of the Pacific Climate Warriors, as you mentioned, and that's under 350... Or 350, and that's a youth-led grassroots network working with communities to fight uh, climate change 
from the Pacific Islands and relative um, related diasporas. Yeah, such important work uh, that you're doing. Was there any kind of big personal moment that got you into climate advocacy and set you on this path? Yeah, so growing up, I kind of like always had a little personality trait for like caring for the environment. I thought it was a bit quirky for that. Um, (laughs) But then it wasn't until 2019 when the school strike for climate um, rally happened in New Zealand um, that's when it kind of really sparked my passion for advocating for climate change from a Pacific perspective. And that's mostly from in a little group called 4TK, which stands for For the Culture. So it's a small group from New Zealand, um, mainly South Auckland. And it was a bunch of school kids who kind of Pacifica school kids. And they rallied like all of the Pacific communities to get involved with the school strike um, just to make sure that we were heard uh, and were a part of the conversation and yeah so they really inspired me because you know they're school kids they were young I was I was a bit older um, at that time a bit older than them but they really inspired me to really push forward and find something you know where I am to be a part of the conversation as well. Mm. And how have you found it so far? I think it's been an amazing experience um, I've definitely from talking to other climate activists I've had a different experience because I've been joined with my community, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's only made my experience better and a lot safer and um, really welcoming for me too, yeah. Yeah, I'm Mm. so glad to hear it. And when we talk about the Pacific, it's so often referred to in the media as on the front lines of climate change um, because obviously it's it's such a vulnerable region. I mean, how does this make you feel... um, when you see sort of those headlines and are there any other narratives of the Pacific around climate change that you feel like aren't getting that attention? Yeah, so I think um, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, it is the truth that we are um, the communities that are at the front lines of this, of the effects of climate change. But I think there's one like strong motto that the Pacific climate warriors have always been like, trying to push forward so we have this saying called we are not drowning we are fighting and that's just our way of saying that um even though we're at the front like we're warriors that's it's in our names and we're we're here to fight and we're you know um because i've i've heard a lot of people talk about the pacific in such a dystopian way like in a way that you know it, it seems like there's no hope for us but we definitely you know, hope is a, a strong point in our organization and we definitely want to push that story that we that we are not drowning and we are fighting. Mm, it's such a great message. Mm-hmm. And in this fight for climate justice, what do you see as some of the major challenges? I think, um, like, climate justice is... It intersects with a lot of other different issues and I think one of the biggest, like... Um, even just being in, you know, so-called Australia or living or benefiting off of this stolen land, one of the biggest challenges is that First Nations justice is climate justice. Mm. And so um, we intersect a lot of with First Nations justice and Indigenous justice. So it, they kind of come hand in hand. So I think that's like a big challenge that already exists. And then to have the impacts of climate change on top of that, like already makes the issue like a whole lot bigger as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, from your uh, family and your heritage perspective in Samoa, what do you see as some of the challenges facing that uh, island nation? 
I think one of the biggest one is the sea level rising. So there's a lot of villages that are out on the coast. And then as the sea level rises, they're slowly coming inwards. And then people have to like relocate where they've been living. Um, they just have to move inwards a lot. Um, there's a lot of scientific facts in the way climate change has been affecting Samoa. Uh, fortunately for the family that I do know, that in Samoa they've been okay because they don't live out too close to the coast. Mm. But I think it's all connected anyway, so any issues that they're facing with businesses or agriculture, like it's all it's all together and it will affect them eventually or if not, they're already being affected, yeah. Mm-hmm. And being in Australia as well, we're considered sort of one of the the more influential nations on this. We have the highest pollution per capita in the world. And the Albanese government has made many commitments to climate action, but simultaneously, they're also funding fossil fuels. So mm-hmm. we're in this weird position where we're fighting climate change, but we're also contributing to it. I mean, in your eyes, does Australia have a bigger role to play in safeguarding the future for our Pacific neighbours? I definitely think so. I, I um, definitely think there's something there that needs to be talked about. Um, and like you mentioned, like there's been a lot of conversation around climate finance and loss and damage funds. And I think it's more about making sure that it doesn't stay a conversation and it's there's action put towards that too. Um, and it's not just all talk and greenwashing that's going on. Um, mm. But, um, yeah, sorry. There were, you said quite a lot there. I wasn't sure if there were other points that I have to draw out from. <laughs> no, no, that's that's all good. Mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, loss and damage and, and mm. climate finance in general, if you have any. Um, yeah, so the establishment for loss and damage uh, fund at COP27 was a win for the Pacific. Um, but again, like... COP27 and COP26 or all the COPs that we've had is a big discussion and what what should come out of that is action. So there's still a lot of uh, work that needs to be done until climate finances reach the communities that need it the most. Mm, 100%. And you were talking a bit before as well about how climate justice and First Nations justice go hand in hand. What actions would you like to see as well to to preserve indigenous communities culture and and land yes so a lot of solidarity work needs to be done and also i think a lot of the climate justice solutions are indigenous solutions if you go back to history and the way that uh, many communities were living before they were all sustainable or mostly were all sustainable and I think there's a lot that we can learn from there and a lot that our government should be looking into to really solve this climate issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It can be a very grim topic to talk about uh, climate change as you would know. What climate positive future would you envision or if you had a message of hope to give what would it be? Yeah, I think um, there's there's plenty of hope. Like, I think it all comes in people power. You know, it's not something the individual can do. It's a lot of community work. It's a lot of rallying together. And, you know, if everyone can put in, I don't see why there can't be a positive outcome at the end. Um, but, yeah, it's a lot of 
working together and putting in the work together. It shouldn't be on one person. And you're never alone in this movement, especially nowadays. Like, the movement's really coming along together well. So I think, yeah, there's no, I don't see no reason why we can't push forward and fight for this. And that was a conversation between Jacob Gamble from Earth Matters speaking with Neta Mayava, a young Samoan Pacific climate warrior, about the need to center First Nations perspectives in climate solutions. And that was the final episode of the Loss, Damage and Denial miniseries running on 3CR's Earth Matters program. Now you can listen back to that full series at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters and you can catch 3CR's Earth Matters Matters program uh, on 855 a.m. on Sundays from 11 to 11:30 a.m. You're listening to Thursday morning breakfast and it is just coming up on 7:41 in the morning. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. Now, I just wanted to remind listeners about the important announcements that we made just after headlines earlier in the show. So this one is a call to action for all social workers. The Australian Association of Social Workers, EGM, is being held today at 4 p.m. AEST. And social workers with lived experience of the criminal punishment system are calling for members to use their votes to remove the discriminatory criminal history clause from the AA. ASW Constitution. Now, this clause prohibits membership to people with lived ex- prison experience of over 12 months. And as uh, Inez mentioned in last week's show, this really locks people with vital lived experience out of, uh, you know, the profession effectively uh, by denying them membership. Uh, but it also creates a hierarchy of social workers that marginalizes people with lived experiences and actually counts that as a, a detriment uh, to their ability to engage fully in the profession rather than um, what it should be considered as, which is a, a vital and rich part of people's experiences where they're able to draw on, you know, those extreme um, extreme experiences of hardship to inform the kind of work uh, trauma-informed and in, in, informed by their interactions with the system to provide, you know, really a, a really different kind of care uh, than people who uh, have only learned about these things uh, from the classroom can can give. So, um, again, really encouraging people who are members of the Australian Association of Social Workers to vote at that EGM, uh, which is being held today at 4 p.m. Or, you know, if you are a social worker and you're eligible to join, please do join and uh, vote uh, in support of that motion to remove the discriminatory criminal history clause from the AASW Constitution. And again, credit to uh, Tina at Sisters Inside for leading the charge on this, this extremely important motion. 
Um, there's also an announcement uh, asking people to please sign the Keep Our City Alive petition in support of a medically supervised injecting room in Melbourne CBD. And as I said before, while the North Richmond Centre has been extremely effective and, um, you know, a wonderful source of support for folks who uh, folks who are injecting um injecting drugs uh, to use safely in a medically supervised setting. Um, of course, uh, the city of Melbourne has one of the highest uh, overdose rates uh, around all of Melbourne's councils in the greater Melbourne area. Um, and this really highlights the need for a medically supervised injecting centre that is at the heart of the CBD, which, as we know, uh, is a central hub for people passing uh, from one side of the city to the other. It's a central meeting place for people. And uh, it's just really important to have that kind of service, uh, which is just such a vital harm reduction tool in the center of the city and available to people who need it, um, you know, to take care of our community and to really destigmatize injecting drug use. I think it is um it is really important to push back against, you know, the narrative of, of, you know, businesses, et cetera, that are saying that this is going to, you know, reduce the amenity of the CBD. I think that is uh, an absolute fallacy that really uh, continues to dehumanize people who use drugs, who are members of our community, um, people that we have a responsibility to, people that we care about. Um, and so we really need to, to show up in force to support the establishment of a medically supervised injecting room in the CBD. And you can find that petition. Now, this is a long one by heading to change.org and searching save lives, support the opening of an overdose prevention service in the Melbourne CBD. Now, I suspect you'll be able to find the petition if you just go to change.org and search overdose prevention Melbourne CBD. Uh, but we will have the link in our show notes, and this is being promoted as well by Harm Reduction Victoria, who we've had on multiple times and who do excellent, excellent work um, with harm reduction and overdose prevention. And so, yeah, can't encourage people enough to support both of these really important initiatives, both the AASW motion to remove the discriminatory criminal history clause from the Constitution and this petition to keep our city alive and support a medically supervised injecting room in Melbourne CBD. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Kamanacha on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And now we're going to head to another track. This one is the new one by incredible father-son duo Inkabee and Fluent. This is We That Good. Mm-hmm. 
Wild West. I hit him with some darkness, leave him obsessed. I'm on this. Nah, I'm the one next. I got this chill with stick to the concept. Yep. Welcome everybody and I'm glad you were proud. Have a great time, hope you enjoy the vibe. Yeah, well, we bring the vibes and we bring the shine job. You just subscribe, make sure that you hit like. I've been steady rocking on this mic for a minute. Huh? All up in the kitchen, making a few dishes. Okay. Competition missing, I don't really see him stepping up. My senses were set to us, must be cause we running the mark. Money we be running it up. In respect, better than us. Heard the sound, loving the plug. Underground. When I'm plugged, are you ready for this here for a play? Yo. Yo. more iconic class than more excited than Beethoven. I hear him talking in the back like they glowing. We see him talking on the net like they glowing. Guess what they really saying is the movement growing. What they ain't knowing once we hunt Ross game, game over. over. For anybody with the thought to contest, I do the Cali West. We the best. Give us the checks and know the money to flex. Yeah, it's the next step. Somebody give it a rest like we, we don't want, want to let you know that. We don't want to rock your show that. We don't want to cast the blow like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. wait. Hey, yo, Winkyby. Yo. I hear him going out there and they're talking about an 11 year old shouldn't be doing what you're doing. What? You know, they're saying you're too young or something. Really? What, you got a secret or what? Uh, maybe. Let them know, my boy. Well, here's something I like in the disproof. I'm a transistor mutant that's moving through human suits. Life is a bit button. I was born. It's 97. It's been 86 years and I was just turned 11. Somebody call up the Reverend. This kid's a weapon. A mass destruction bullet with some butterfly wings. Where they smashing pumpkins. We crash your function and leave you with cash reduction. So when we blowing up, don't call it no gas combustion. Don't you mess with what's in this boy bringing that breaking news. Say this too, man. It's too late to lose. I'm already the yeah. proof. We say we be supposed to be saying truth. And this war, but the door. I'm in the zone. Then I'm in the mood. Yeah. Rappers making views. Exaggerating the crowd. What? Open up ID and it's validating my doubt. Uh. But that's fine. Stay on the grind. Never get the route. Cause I know that the next generation gonna hold it down. Yeah. That I do. do. Check this beat one, two. two. Everyone I know make it move. Ghost with smooth. Yeah. Rides like this can't do. do. This is the life that I choose. That I do. do. Check this beat one, two. Do. Everyone I know make it move. Ghost with smooth. Yeah. Rides like this can't do. Yeah. This is yeah. the life that yeah. I choose. We sling lightning like Titans. Flow so tight and exciting. Boy, be surprised if they fight it. Mind of a giant. Mind of a mind. Align with the lions and tigers. Survivors. Providers. We come from a warrior race. What you gonna say when we all in your face? Huh, tell your pride now when I thought of escape. Until you mention our names when you're talking to Grace. We, we that, that good. We that good. We that good. Are you kidding me? That was straight fire. We That Good by father-son duo Inkaby and Fluent. I just, like, speechless. That was an absolutely incredible track. Um, really encouraged people to go check out Inkaby's other stuff. Uh, as he mentioned in the song, he's 11. And, I mean, obviously, with a dad like Fluent MC, um, you know, what else can you expect? That kid is going places. This is just an absolutely incredible tune. Um, you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard it on the news? About this fascist group thing. Even with racist views. Spreading all across the land. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. 
Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Now, we're going to be heading to another track. This one is another new tune. This is called Rain by JK47, Jay Orient, and Adrian Eagle. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Just the AD, JK and J Orient Sense the eloquence, rough but elegant It's ain't like ain't ripping in every element Of this rap shit, the fact is this is real life For all my people that's struggling just to feel right That's why each lyric I spit just hits different Trying to give them wisdom and still they don't want to listen to shit It's okay cause I'm making this for the children And anybody that's willing to keep building Never fit it to the image, rather stand out Compliment that shit on my mother cause I'm a man now Listening to Stevie, wondering about the key to life I've got a son of my own and I'm trying to teach him right That's why instead of speaking darkness, I've been speaking lie I've been the greedy top, just need enough to feed and try That was Rain by JK47, J Orient, and Adrian Eagle. Another absolute banger. You are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Qualitops in Reservoir. 
Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunjalini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, before we jump into the next interview, I just want to uh, let listeners know that this is going to be a conversation about uh, restrictive practices used against people with disability, and it might be distressing for some listeners. So uh, if you want to take a break and come back and join us later, we should be done in about 15 minutes from now, so at just leading up to quarter past eight. Uh, but also, if you wish to speak with someone about any of the issues that are mentioned in this interview, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can also contact uh, Beyond Blue uh, on 1300 224 636. That's 1300 224 636. People that are impacted by uh, sexual assault, domestic, or family violence can call 1 800 RESPECT. That's 1 800 737 732. And we will have further information um, about the Disability Gateway uh, with plenty of links to other information that people might want to um, to access uh, post listening to this interview and uh, finally you can contact the National Disability Abuse and Neglect Hotline to report concerns on 1-800-880-052 that's 1-800-880-052 so we'll jump into it now we are joined by Dr. Claire Spivakovsky who's a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Melbourne and she's joining us to discuss the recently released report commissioned by the Disability Royal Commission titled Restrictive Practices, a Pathway to Elimination. This report was co-authored by Claire, University of Technology Sydney Associate Professor Linda Steele, and University of Sydney Associate Professor Dinesh Wadiwal, which emphasizes the urgency of ending the use of forced restraints and restrictive practices against people with disability in the face of their continued and expanding use across multiple sectors. Now, Claire spends much of their time drawing attention to the violent, restrictive, and coercive practices that continue to segregate, control, and limit the lives of people with disability in the community. Good morning, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Now, 
I thought we could begin by situating this report that you co-authored within the current environment of regulatory scrutiny around restrictive practices in Australia. And part of that includes the February publication of the NDIS um, Quality and Safeguard Commission's report on unauthorized uses of restrictive practices in the NDIS. And this report included the alarming documentation of an increase in reported use of unauthorized restrictive practices from around 290,000 incidents in the 2019-2020 financial year to over 1.4 million in 2021 to 2022. Can you tell us a bit about this context and also about what authorized versus unauthorized restrictive practices? Uh, yeah. Uh, sure. Um, maybe what would help first is if I just take a second to talk about what restrictive practices are, and then I'll jump into authorised versus unauthorised. Sure. Um, so in our report, we showed how restrictive practices are actions which are targeted at people with disability, which strip people with disability of dignity, and which are typically experienced by people with disability as cruel, humiliating, violent, coercive, painful, and traumatic. So I think that's probably the first key thing to recognise, which is restrictive practices are a form of violence that targets people with disability and which is entirely at odds with the human rights of people with disability. And then I guess a second crucial point that we also showed in our report is that this form of targeted violence is then legally authorised and or socially or professionally sanctioned. Mm. And that's where this sort of issue of authorised versus unauthorised restrictive practices comes in. Because currently in Australia, this form of targeted violence is authorised and it's regulated by discrete policy and legislation that's used only against people with disabilities, such as, for example, the NDIS rules of 2018, but there are other examples too. Um, but since we're talking about the sort of NDIS context, in practice what this means is if you want to authorise a use of restrictive practices, then a service provider has to develop a um, positive call plan, and I can talk a bit about those later if you want, seek so to gain authorisation from there. Um, relative authority in their state and then comply with ongoing reporting requirements by the NDIS. Mm -hmm. And if they do all of these things, then it's said to be authorised by law, by policy. And if they deviate from this process, then it's said to be unauthorised. So that's kind of the overarching distinction. Um, but again, I'll come back to this point which I made at the start, which is Restrictive practices are violent and coercive actions that target people with disability that are experienced as violent and as harmful, which strip people of dignity. So in essence, whether or not someone completes the right paperwork and jumps the correct hurdles of that paperwork before you can use them or not use them, it seems like quite a sort of uh, arbitrary and, and slight bizarre distinction to be making when we're talking about violence. Um, and I guess that kind of comes to this point that you said about the increased uses of um, unauthorised mm -hmm. restrictive practices so that we have in that 2021-2022 financial year over 1.4 million recorded unauthorised uses. So what that actually means in practice is that there were over 1.4 million times in that financial year that people with disability experienced targeted violence 
that may not have been legally sanctioned because mm-hmm. the correct paperwork had not been filled out for it, but was still socially and professionally sanctioned. It was still being believed to be a thing that was thought to be okay to do to someone with disability because we do have laws and policies more generally that say that that's an okay thing to do. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognise here that that's still, again, this really arbitrary and problematic distinction between authorised and unauthorised uses. So there were over 1.4 million experiences of violence that had not, you know, been said to be authorised because particular paperwork hadn't been filled out in that period. But actually we have no clear indication from anyone about how many more million experiences of violence in that form of restrictive practices also occurred in that period because people did fill out the correct paperwork for it and therefore we don't track it in the same kind of way. So in a sense, what we actually get from the reports um, for the Quality and Safeguards Commission, which share figures like this, is just the tip of the iceberg of the amount of violence people with disability are experiencing each year in the context of restrictive practices under the NDIS service provision. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you, um, you know, calling into question how meaningful that distinction between authorized and unauthorized means uh, when the practices we're talking about are inherently violent and, and coercive and experienced as such by people with disability. And, you know, I understand that they operate in a range of different ways and in, in terms of their relative levels of use and their chemical restraints, which are the most frequently used. Um, they're used in a variety of different practices. Um, and so, This report that you co-authored highlighted a range of serious concerns around the normalization of violence, coercion and control in the treatment of people with disability through the use of restrictive practices. So I was hoping that you could speak to how the application of these practices intersect with culturally entrenched ableism, which is something you were sort of um, gesturing to in, in that first response. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, again, I'll, I'll come back to this sort of original definition that we worked with in the, and developed in the report, which is that restricted practices are a targeted form of violence that are legally and or socially and professionally sanctioned, and ableism is part of that social sanction. So ableism is a sort of tricky concept to define, but I guess a very simplistic definition would be that ableism is about a set of beliefs about favoured and preferred abilities in people, which are then perceived as being so-called essential abilities in some way. And so anyone who is perceived as lacking these so-called essential abilities, which are just preferred abilities by some people, are then seen as being diminished or less than or impaired in some way. And what this can mean is that these views about people with disability as, you know, quote-unquote other or quote-unquote lesser can kind of lay the groundwork for a range of other assumptions to materialise. And let me try and explain that a bit better. So when we assume that people with disability are somehow less than because of a perceived essential ability is said to be lacking, We might also then believe that such people need to be, you know, quote, protected or, quote, cared for, that those sorts of ideas tend to uh, match up together. And this might sound on the surface like something good, something well-intentioned, but in reality, these sorts of commitments to care may end up promoting a desire to view things like current service practices, um, including restrictive practices, as being better and safer than what might have come before. So 
again, I'll try to explain that a bit better with an example. It isn't uncommon for people to believe that it's better that people with disability are now in the community in group homes and not locked away in those huge institutions that people can draw back up in their imagination. But when we believe this, we're not looking at the fact that we're still segregating and congregating people with disability away from everyone else under this sort of guise of protection and care and under this sort of perception that, you know, being in the community in a group home is somehow inherently better than being in an institution, mm. even though in these group homes people still have little to no choice or control about who they live with, what they do day to day, and if they don't follow the rules about what they are expected to do day to day and how they are expected to behave and how to just get along with people you never chose to live with, then they can be perceived as having, you know, unacceptable or concerning behaviour. And then the group home provider can be entitled to apply for restrictive practices to be used against that person. So you get this sort of really um, enmeshed, problematic, encompassing issue when you sort of have these ableist ideas about, you know, what are the preferred and favoured ways for people to be in society mm. and then what we do when people don't match up to that and it can tie into things like use of restrictive practices when we don't ask questions about it. Yeah. And I guess like I was also, you know, wondering if you could uh, speak to how the institutional cultures of, of group homes and other settings factor into the use of restrictive practices and how it intersects with imposed austerity on disability support services um, with, you know, this constant reporting um, and government rhetoric, um, I mean, political rhetoric across the spectrum um, about the need to uh, the need to rein in spending on the NDIS, but also, you know, social support services in general and how that then reflects on Australia's international human rights obligations, including the, under the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think what we sort of were able to show in our report is that the relationship between people with disability and those who are tasked with supporting them takes shape in these sorts of institutional and organisational contexts, and those things can't be separated. And what our report shows is that really the sort of research literature, research evidence is quite unequivocal, which is that people with disability are subjected to the greatest use of restrictive practices in segregated and congregated contexts mm. where people with disability are being clustered together. So that's places like group homes, but it's also in places like segregated education settings, day programs, aged care facilities, mental health facilities, and so on. And basically what we see is that in these settings like this, where people are being segregated and congregated, as I said before, there's, there's a complete lack of choice and autonomy. And this dynamic of lack of choice and autonomy is the sort of distinguishing factor that contributes to the increased use of restrictive practices in this particular kind of settings. At the same time, Research also suggests that both within and beyond segregated and congregated settings, there are a number of workplace concerns that appear to both work separately and together to drive the use of restrictive practices. And one of those factors is this bit that you were sort of picking up on there, which is this under-resourced services and supports for people with disability. So basically, research suggests that there's an association between the resourcing of a workplace 
and then staff's perception of safety within that workplace and staff attitudes towards um, and use of restrictive practices for the purposes of maintaining what they seem to be a safe environment. So in practice, what this can mean is that some staff may be using restrictive practices as one of the primary tools by which they can negotiate the broader sort of structural and economic issues associated with a completely under-resourced and understaffed disability sector. Um, and, you know, we provide a sort of case example in, in the report, and, and it also comes from one of the Disability Royal Commission hearings of, you know, people that have, uh, you know, two or three staff members being responsible for 30-odd people with a range of different sorts of needs that require um, support and essentially just not being able to do anything, not really actually being able to facilitate anything and having to sort of tie people down uh, or believe that that is the only way to respond to the situation because there are no other sort of mechanisms available in that space. And this is what under-resourcing looks like and understaffing looks like. And if you couple that with a situation where we say or believe, for the reasons I said before, that, you know, some people seem to believe that it's okay that you can use restrictive practices against a person with disability. If that becomes a possibility in a space where other things have been taken away, then that can create this really horrible coupling. So in terms then of Australia's human rights applications, look, there's a lot to say about that, mm -hmm. um, but I'll make a quick point, which is Regardless of whatever setting restrictive practices are being used in, they are completely at odds with international human rights obligations for the treatment of people with disability. So there is an absolute non-derogable prohibition on torture and cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment under international law, and that includes under the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And this means that restrictive practices that rise to the level of torture and cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment must be prohibited, and what our report shows is that that's the exact way that people with disability are describing their experiences of restrictive practices. But there's also a strong human rights obligation related to prohibition of discrimination against people with disability and the rights to protection of people with disability from violence. And so insofar as restrictive practices are a form of violence that is applied on a discriminatory basis to people with disability, which is what it is. We have disability-specific laws to apply it. We don't apply it to everyone else. Then these practices, even when they don't arise to the level of torture or cruel and human or degrading treatment or punishment, they're still at odds with international human rights law. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it it really speaks to this sort of pernicious combination of factors where there is um, yeah, this cultural um, normalization of ableism, uh, these financial kind of and, and economic um, pressures under increasing austerity measures. And um, yeah, I guess also, you know, something that we haven't talked about, but, you know, disability workforce issues where those things come together with a casualized, increasingly casualized workforce. Um, and there's, you know, just such a um, such a huge price to pay by people with disability who then experience these horrible conditions, um, these dehumanizing conditions. Uh, now, 
just in view of um, of wrapping up, I, I know the recommendations in the report take a systemic or ecological view of structural ableism and target the issues that lead to the use of restrictive practices at multiple scales. So I was wondering if you could maybe um, briefly comment on the need for explicitly anti-carceral approaches to disability support um, and, you know, in, in light of what's come out of your findings. Yeah, sure. So... Um Absolutely. It's really quite important that we think about actually how we are resourcing different things and, and where we are trying to make change happen. And so um, very briefly, I'll, I'll recommend if um, listeners are interested in 2020 Disabled People's Organisations Australia, which is sort of the collective of the peak uh, disabled people's organisations, the representative people's uh, organisations, released a position paper outlining six key actions to end segregation in Australia. Um, and that includes sort of recommendations to provide resources to increase the supply and range of accessible social and public housing stock and to mandate minimum universal accessible housing design standards in order to kind of move towards desegregation. And, and really that's what our report is calling for as well, is that we have to call for and expect the full deinstitutionalization and full desegregation of people with disability in, in our community because this is what our obligations are. This is what is entirely consistent with how we actually have violence prevention, uh, prevention and safety enhancement and that's what we keep seeing in so many different royal commissions that have taken place. And, and I think that's kind of a, another, just a final point that I'd make, which is that we have all these expectations in society about how do we end violence uh, and if we think about even how do we end violence against women, we don't say let's end violence against women by regulating it and letting it be kind of okay in some places but not others. Mm -hmm. We say very firmly, no, let's end it. We must end this now. And these are the same sorts of statements we're making about violence against people with disability. And so A, I'd say we need to ask a question about why we don't make those same statements and why we don't back them in the same way. And then B, I would say we have to realise that this is part of that entrenched ableism, that we don't seem to think that we can expect the same or that people with disability do deserve the same as other people when it comes to ending violence. So I would just sort of, again, reiterate these kinds of points about we need to continuously ask questions and then demand the answers and act on those answers about why is it that we are not expecting the same expectations to happen for people with disability in our society as we do for anyone else. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a, a sort of perfect uh, way to to sum it up, and I really encourage people to read the report. Um, there is going to be links to everything in our show notes. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. No problem at all. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Dr. Claire Spivakovsky, a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Melbourne, who spoke with us about the recently released report commissioned by the Disability Royal Commission titled Restrictive Practices, a Pathway to Elimination. Now, we will have links to that report and to Disability Gateway and to support services in our show notes. And uh, we, again, thank Claire and uh, thank the co-authors as well, Associate Professor Linda Steele and Associate Professor Dinesh Wadiwa for exploring this um, and, uh, again, encourage people to engage with this, uh, especially if you uh, are, you know, presently non-disabled, to engage with this and to not turn away from these seriously concerning findings. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM.
Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunjalini, at the fire and Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM for our final interview and we are joined by Lara Week who's a resident of Technopark Drive in Williamstown who is speaking with us with an update about the campaign by Technopark residents to stay in their homes in the wake of eviction notices issued by Hobson's Bay Council which decided to enforce the area's long-standing industrial zoning in May of this year despite it being used for residential accommodation since the post-World War II era. Lara, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks Priya. Yeah, so since you spoke with my colleague Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on the 15th of July, it appears that Hobson's Bay Council's primary form of collective engagement with Technopark Drive residents has been a renewed effort to enforce compliance with that initial order to cease residential use. So can you tell us a bit about what's happened since then and especially what happened on the 21st of July? Uh, on the 21st of July, Hobson's Bay Council sent a compliance officer and um, and a colleague of his to hand-deliver new notices to Technopark Homes. Um, this compliance officer is someone with numerous uh, complaints against him by Technopark residents for how he's treated people when they called to say, um, as they were directed in the first notice, that they'd experienced hardship if they had to leave their home immediately. People said he was degrading and frightening. Um, the notice that he hand-delivered starts by apologising if people were upset by the first notice and then reiterates basically the same thing, that people have to make contact with the council individually so that the council can consider extensions of time based on their individual situations. Um, but this one also offers referrals to mental health services. Um, the response from people here has just been that that is so <laughs> insulting. Mm. Um, my neighbour, Helen, who's 70 this year, said it was lipstick on a pig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it just seems so inappropriate. And, I mean, this goes to my next question, because the Technopark Residents Association have pre- prepared a briefing document that outlines the history of residential use of the area and identifying that it has been and continues to be safe for residential occupation despite its industrial zoning since 1988, I believe. So I was hoping that you could speak to the brief discussion of the, quote, current and imminent risk, end quote, to resident safety that comes from the eviction notice itself and how that safety consideration is featured in conversations with the council considering they're now bringing up things like mental health supports? Mm. Yeah, the council has said a number of times that it's not safe to live here because of our proximity to a tank farm, but Mobile have said that those tanks are empty and have been for years, so they actually contain no hazards. Um, however, the council's threat against our homes has caused people enormous fear, insecurity and distress. 
You know, it impacts people at every level of their lives. And I don't understand how since RoboDebt there is any government who doesn't understand that when you threaten people's livelihoods, you threaten people's lives, mm. you know? Um, so there's the risk to people's, uh, you know, people who are not vulnerable because they have secure housing, um, the, the, the action of council creates a risk to, the, to us, you know, mm. both in terms of mental health and in terms of physical safety. People have already been made homeless by this notice. Mm-hmm. The letter said you must cease residential use immediately or face legal action. There are landlords and real estate agents who, who took the council at their word and did exactly as they were instructed by Hobson's Bay Council in the notice, and they kicked their tenants out that day. Mm. We know that people who are forced to leave their homes don't end up in safe situations, you know, whether that's because you have no other shelter to go to or it's that you return to an unsafe situation. You know, there are a number of people who, who live here who have made a home having fled family violence, mm. you know, or you end up living somewhere where you aren't able to say no to things because, you know, the, the risk of having to leave is too great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, there are so many serious concerns about the way that this is being handled and, um, you know, the, the active production of harm that this eviction, um, you know, these eviction notices have caused. Now, have you received any support from individual councillors or other local government members for the campaign to stay at Techno Park? And do you have any messages that you would like to send to the council now? Uh, we have received support from exactly one Hobson's Bay councillor. Her name is Daria Callender. Uh We've met with other councillors a couple of weeks ago. We met with them and we asked if they supported us. And if they weren't sure yet, what was the obstacle for them? Their answers were... They didn't fully understand planning, they didn't fully understand the law, and they didn't fully understand their powers as councillors. Um, you know, we we urge them, given the very serious implications for people's lives and futures, that they all go and seek independent advice about all of those questions that they have so that they can take an educated position on how they're going to act here because to, to, to not act is also a choice that also impacts people's lives. Um, I haven't heard from any of the other councillors since then, but I would continue to urge them to do the same. Mm. I mean, it's grim that their response was they didn't know their responsibilities. Um, you know, this is playing with people's lives, and it's, it's just, you know, can't, can't overstate how serious this is. Now, residents of Techno Park Drive have organised a rally on Tuesday the 8th of August prior to the next Hobson's Bay Council meeting. How can people show up to support, and what do you plan to achieve with this action? Yeah, please, if you can, come to our rally. We'll be meeting at 5.30pm on Tuesday at Logan Reserve and then marching up to the the council meeting, which is about a 10-minute walk um, away. Uh, We want to show the council and the councillors at Hobson's Bay that people in the community really care about what happens at Techno Park and are paying attention. And we also want to show that to, you know, other residents too. The council's treated people at Techno Park as those people are absolutely disposable and... The care from our community and people turning up in that way really tells us that we are not. Mm, absolutely. And will you be attending the meeting afterwards? Is that a possibility? Uh, yes, I'll be. A, well, look, I'll try to attend. Basically, the council has a, a 
you have to register for the meeting, and then two days later you get an email saying whether or not you got in. So um, certainly we will all be registering and attempting to attend the meeting, um, but we got, we won't know till Monday um, who got a ticket. Yeah, I mean. You know, it stands to reason that everybody who's been affected by the eviction notices should be able to be present at, at such a, you know, at, at a meeting that where, where these issues are going to be potentially discussed. And I feel like, um, you know, everybody who is listening right now should definitely make the effort to, to head down next Tuesday. Um, and if people can't get there, I know you've got a change.org petition, which we'll put in our show notes, um, and we'll share links to your socials as well. Um, but Lara, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us this morning. Thank you so much, Priya. Thanks. And that was Lara Week, who is a resident of Technopark Drive in Williamstown, who joined us with an update about the campaign by Technopark residents to stay in their homes in the wake of eviction notices issued by the Hobson's Bay Council. So, again, um, the residents of Technopark Drive are holding a rally next Tuesday, the 8th of August, prior to the next Hobson's Bay Council meeting, and they're calling for supporters to meet at Logan Reserve Altona at 5.30 p.m., um, with plans to march to the Altona Civic Center ahead of the council's 7 p.m. meeting. Now, we'll have more information about the campaign, how to write to Hobson's Bay councillors, and about their petition in our show notes. That is all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. So just a quick rundown. First up, we heard a replay of a conversation between James McKenzie from In Your Face with Jacob Thomas from Rainbow Community Angels. We heard Jacob Gamble from Earth Matters speaking with Pacific Climate Warrior Neta Mayava. We also heard from Dr. Claire Spivakovsky on the Restrictive Practices, a Pathway to Elimination report. And finally, as we just heard, uh, we spoke with Lara Week, a resident of Technopark Drive in Williamstown, who joined us with an update about the campaign from residents. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.